Hi, I'm Marika and welcome to Money Chill Out. On this podcast, I want to dive into the world of the often unspoken topic of money. Effective personal finance management can be a great liberator, but also a huge stress factor in our lives. After a 10-year career on trading flows in London, I want to help demystify the intimidating world of finance and have an open, honest and frank conversation. By opening the discussion, I wish you identify yourself, learn, be inspired and get empowered. Every other week, I'll be joined by guests for conversation on money, mindsets, investment habits and any best practices they abide by. So join me on this journey as we unpick the complexities of finance and get more comfortable talking about our money. And when you're ready to go further in mastering your finances, come and work with me on a one-to-one coaching. You'll grow your awareness, move on with your projects, and have an accountability buddy to track your progress. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Timothy, a portfolio manager specializing in fixed income products that has spent his career between Edinburgh and Paris. He manages 850 million of assets and can shed the lights on those products that provide periodic income payments at predetermined interest rates. They are often seen as more technical and complex than equities, but they can be great for diversifying your portfolio and for providing additional revenues. Even though he serves institutional clients, today's focus will be on individuals so that we have a great overview on why how and when we can use bonds in our portfolio. Other than that, Tim is a father of two, loves couchsurfing, snowboarding, and hiking. So hi, Tim, how are you? Hi, I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, great. Thank you. I'm uh, super happy to have you on this podcast, so thanks for your time. Very interested in today's subject. It kind of throws me back into my London environment, so nice. And doing a deep dive into an asset class with an expert is always super informative and wise, so really can't wait. Can you tell us a bit about your career in fixed income? So what do you do? I am a fixed income portfolio manager for Financière de la City. And basically, we are managing the asset of our clients and uh, we are investing it on the fixed income market. So we're going to speak about what is exactly fixed income, but what it is to be a fixed income portfolio manager, like what's your day-to-day looking like? Concretely, my job is to trade financial debts on the financial markets. Those debts are called bonds and uh, they can be issued by government or corporate or municipalities. So they need the, the bond market to finance their projects. So my day-to-day job would be to analyze the opportunity on the bond market and uh, analyze the project of different corporate or government when they want to issue a bond and to decide if I want to buy this bond or not on the primary market. Or if there is no primary subject on a given day, you can also trade this debt on the secondary market. Mm-hmm. So again, all the primary, secondary, and so on, we, we're going to see it later, but it's to give like a, a broad overview. And what are the skills that you really need in order to perform your job? So it's a highly quantitative job. So anything with numbers uh, is uh, very, very important. The payoff of a bond is really complex. It's really a wide market. 
So you need to have some great fundamental analysis. And above all, in this, uh, in this world controlled by central banks, you need to have some uh, very strong global micro analysis skills. Mm-hmm. So it's a question of being technical with like all the mass aspects, understanding the calculation behind the product, but as well being like really down-to-earth person in a way, understanding the global world and how action of central bank going to impact or going to have a, like a real impact on the economy. Yeah, one cannot work without the other. If you know perfectly technically how bond works, but you have no idea where the global economy is going, you won't have any good result. And on the contrary, if you understand the economics and everything, but you don't know how the bonds are going to react on a technical point of view, it's the same. It's it's impossible. It, it's a kind of hybrid uh, kind of investment where those two skills are really paramount and uh, you cannot do without both. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that you need both. And who are your clients and what do you solve for them? So we have two kinds of clients, institutional clients, which are like big entity, like insurance corporation, for example, or individuals. So an individual can uh, give us his assets and uh, he's waiting for a return on them and uh, so capital appreciation. And uh, because we are on fixed income, you can also have regular payments on those kind of funds. That's for individual investor. And for institutional, it's a bit different where like an insurer, for example, he has some different kind of needs. Capital preservation would be the most important uh, characteristic here. But then he has to do a profit on the, on the performance that we can give them. So that would be two of the big problematic that we have for our clients. Okay. And for individual clients, is there like a minimum threshold or? It really depends on, uh, on each fund. There's no rule, uh, but with the UC system, now everybody can have access to funds like that. Nice. Let's do the deep dive. So if you were to describe fixed income products very simply in a very accessible way, how would you do it? Okay, so that's a challenge because it's a complex universe. It's always good to do the parallel with equity because people have uh, have a little bit familiar with equity. So if you buy some equity, you own part of the corporation. And if you buy a bond, basically you're lending some money to the corporation or to a government for them to realize their project. So it could be like, uh, I don't know, a brand like Tesco who, who needs to build a new uh, factory or whatever, and they need a uh, hundred million uh, in sterling, and they are going to go in, on the bond markets. And uh, people like me will buy the bonds and giving them the money. And in exchange, they will give us uh, what we call the coupons. So that's uh, a regular periodic interest rates. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of the contract, when the bond arrives at maturity, they're going to give us back the 100 million that we lend them. So it's a bit like when you want to buy a flat and you you go to take a mortgage uh, to your bank. It's the same thing, but we are at the place of the bank and we give it to corporation or government for their projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're basically financing their needs. And you often have capital preservation which means like if you give the 100 million, as the example you said, you expect it back at some point in the future, unless the company defaults. Yeah, so default is, uh, we have two main risks. 
the first one would be default. So if the company doesn't go well, uh, they can just say, uh, okay, we are not able to repay uh, what you give us. So we're not going to give you anything back or we're going to give you uh, what we can by selling everything we have. And then we give you uh, 10% or 15% of what we owe you. So that's a very big risk. It's very, really rare. I never had a default event uh, since the beginning of my career. And you have different kinds of fixed income market. You have the high yield one, which is really risky, and the investment grade one, which is like safer. So it doesn't mean it's bulletproof and nothing will happen in the investment grade uh, universe. But basically, it's quite rare to have a default event on a big blue chips company. Um, it doesn't happen often. So that's one of the big risks. The other important risk that we have is interest risk. So if the interest rate of government bonds goes up like, quite fast, uh, that can impact the, our portfolio. So when the interest rate goes up, the bonds go down because the value of your bond is less appealing because they give you a fixed coupons, like we said, and then you can have better on the, on the new bonds that have an interest rate higher. So basically being, so let's say you've bought a 10-year with a, I don't know, 1%, let's dream. <laughs> you, you stuck for 1% for that 10 years, but maybe in three years time, the interest rate will be at 3% and then your 1% doesn't really. Yeah. Then if you want to sell it, nobody will buy it at 100. If you bought it at 100, nobody will want to buy it at 100 because they can buy with 100, they can buy something that gives them two or three percent. So yeah. you'll have to reduce the price to 80 or something like that. So that's a, that's an important risk. And it goes back to one characteristic that's uh, that's important for a bonds market and that people outside of the market doesn't really know. But on the fixed income market, you can buy a bond and sell it 10 seconds later at a different price. It's a moving price. It's moving every second. And you can you can trade it like you would equity. You can trade debt and like there is a very wide and very important market for that. Mm -hmm. So for investors like you and me, there are a few things that we need to bear in mind. So first, the counterparties who are looking for funds are targeting often benchmark deals, which are worth one billion or more. So they fill their orders with only big tickets. So we as individuals can only aim for the secondary market, which means buying a bond after it's been first issued, it'd be like second hand. Do you see any problems there or, or do you have anything to add? It's a very complicated market because there is like hundreds of bonds for one company where if you buy an equity, you're just going to buy the one equity. And also it's very complicated to have access to it. So like you said, the primary market, it's going to be only for institutional or asset manager. You cannot as an individual participate at, uh, as in the primary, at the primary market. But even for the secondary market, it's very complicated for private investors to go to some deals. It's not something like really popular and it's much more simpler to do that through a fund. So that's actually, yeah, the, the second aspect of it. So because of the um, issues that you've highlighted, you rarely buy direct because there's too many and, and yeah, it's a bit of a mess. So you often select either a fund or an exchange trading fund, also called ETF, that would match your strategy. And basically you would do the asset allocation, which means find the correct fund for your profile but then 
the security selection will be done by the professional. So as soon as you've selected a fund, that fund will be managed by someone. So what's your take on this? So yeah, you don't really have a choice to me. If you want to have some fixed income exposure, you have to go through bonds and, and ETFs. ETFs are really good because are, they are cheap, but the problem most of the time is they are, they are tracking an index. So they are not dynamic, they are not moving, and they are loaded in duration. So duration is the, the sensitivity of your funds to move on interest rates. And it's one of the most important metrics in our universe. And uh, so it hasn't been a problem for decades because the interest rates, they are going down all the time on the market for lately. So nobody, nobody saw the duration of the ETF as a problem. But now that we went to negative interest rate and we are like at zero in many, many countries, if you're scared that the interest rates are going to go up, you cannot go in a, an ETF within seven or eight duration because it means every hundred basis points of the when the interest rates are going to go up, you're going to lose eight percent on your capital, and so that's a very very big problem. Mm-hmm. On the contrary, when you go to open-ended fund and uh, even more um, the type of strategy like the one and manage, it's a dynamic fund, but it's also. Um, a fund that uses like uh, that has the capacity to go to negative sensitivity. Basically, it means that it can have a positive performance when the rate goes up instead of normally it's the contrary. And uh, you don't have any ETF like normal ETFs that can be positive when the rates goes up. It's a little bit what is happening right now uh, since the beginning of the year, where the rates are going up like uh, by a lot. So a lot of fixed income uh, benchmarks or, or portfolio uh, are losing already one, one and a half percent since the beginning of the year. But because I cut my duration to zero uh, at the right moment, uh, I have a positive performance since the beginning of the year. So that's a really big difference between open-ended fund and, and ETF. Good point. Yeah. And also, there are two types of funds, the one who distributes and the one who accumulates. So as the name says, like if you distribute, you basically give back the profit, whereas if you accumulate, all your earnings will be reinvested back into your pot. So what's the proportion of each of those funds? So most of the open-ended funds are accumulation type. When you're an asset manager, you if you don't have to, you, you prefer to keep the asset and uh, make it grow as much as you can. And then when the client needs it, he takes it back as he needs. But uh, we don't really do the distribution type. Yeah, it's more a product for individual. So imagine I want to have like extra income. How do I do if I invest in an accumulation fund? I withdraw every so often, like the, the amount that I need. Yeah, but for an individual, that's not a problem. If you go to a big insurer, you'll, you'll have the both, both of those types. Because they, if you really need to have a steady stream of income, yeah, you do the distribution type. Or you can, um, you can keep the accumulation and uh, withdraw quarterly or annually. Mm-hmm. And once you're convinced that you want to go into fixed income, then you need to select the support. So what kind of life insurance or ISA or things equivalent you would recommend using to be able to invest on the fixed income products? 
Yeah, well, both of those life insurance or individual saving accounts are great for if you want to have some fixed income because the goal here is to reduce the tax that you would have to pay. So any vehicle that uh, allows to do that would, uh, would do the trick. Okay. So now let's go into constructing a portfolio. So we've understood the product. We know we want to be exposed. So as we are effectively lending money, as you said, our biggest risk is that the counterparty you lend the money to can't repay you back. So you can diversify to reduce your risks with following ideas as each specificities will react differently. So you can choose like different geographical zones. So of course, like Europe will be different to Asia, which will be different to, to the US. So how much diversity do you recommend taking? So it's a very, very important point. I recommend as much as you can. For example, if you take only UK bonds or only French bonds, that's really not diverse. Enough diversification, you, you can really be exposed to idiosyncratic events like Brexit or as of late, the Bank of England was not really clear on its communication and it impacted the UK bond market and you had a lot of volatility. So you don't want to have that and to be uh, to be exposed to only one geographical zone. So if you want, if you need to to choose some bonds, you really need to choose global bonds. And uh, there's no no point of choosing only one location, except if you mm -hmm. have strong view, like you think the the Asian market is is going to be great on the next ten years, then why not? But it's a big risk. If you don't really know, it's better to to be as wide as you can. Okay. And then you, we also have like corporate bonds, government bonds, and even like uh, municipalities. So can you briefly tell us about like the risk differences between all of them? So yeah, it's, the credit risk is much bigger on the credit market. So that's corporate uh, bonds. So on the government bond, you have the emerging market, which is riskier than the, the rest of the world. But uh, if you buy like G10 uh, countries like the US or in Europe, you're most of the time protected by the central banks. So the risk is really low, but the yield mm -hmm. you're going to have is, is low as well. On the, credit, on the credit side, it can be riskier. Like uh, you have more default of corporate versus countries. Uh, it's pretty rare when a country collapses, uh, even more if it's not an emerging market country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then everything is linked to like a notation. So you said earlier in our discussion that there were investment grades and kind of junk. So again, can you tell us a bit like the risk return differences there? So it's major, like uh, if you look at the five years basket of European investment grade bonds, you're going to look at like 50, 60 basis points of return. And if you go on the junk category, that can go up to 280 basis points on, on average. The return is really different, but the risk is, uh, is really different as well. So within both of the universe, you can have like nearly junk bond, but which are investment grade and which are going to give you a better return. And the contrary is also true. But at the bottom of the junk universe, it's really risky business. And uh, I would not recommend to go there. Basically, I would not recommend to go to a full high yield junk bond fund. I think what, everything that I said is linked. Like you need diversity in the geographical location. 
You need also diversity in the corporate versus government bonds uh, market. You need a fund that's able to do both. We call that an aggregate fund. And we also need a fund uh, that can do investment grade and junk bonds. But I wouldn't go above 20 to 30% of high yield and junk. It's the same thing. So I wouldn't go above 30% of high yield bonds uh, in a portfolio because you don't want to have a, an idiosyncratic event that can really mess up your, your performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as well, you can diversify with the duration. So again, you've talked about the concept earlier. It's basically how sensitive is your portfolio to a change of yield. And this is really linked to the time horizon. So of course, if you the bond environment is anything from a few months to 30 years or even more, of course, these have different risk implications. So can you shed a light a bit? Yeah, so as I said, it's one of uh, our most important metrics. If you have a short duration, it's safer because imagine you lend uh, for six months, you have less chance of the company to default on, on those six months, whereas in 30 years, you have a lot of time for things to change and that can be dangerous. So the yield is going to be different. You're going to have like low yield at the beginning of the curve and high yield at the top of the curve. It's the same mechanism that if you want to borrow money from the bank, you're going to pay more for a 25 years mortgage versus for a 10 years mortgage. So yeah, the duration is uh, is really important because of the credit risk, basically. That's what I described. But also for the interest rate risk, It's the same logic. If you wait for 20 years, the rates, the interest rates on any given countries, uh, they have more time for to rise. So you're t- you're taking more risk. So you need a premium for that. So you're gonna you're gonna be paying more if you lend uh, if you lend the money for longer. So yeah, you're gonna have more money if you if you take longer, but the risks are bigger, or default or interest rate risk. Mm-hmm. So the question of finding the right portfolio which has a bit of everything so that again risks are shared and and you can still have a bit of performance and timing wise like which economic cycle do fixed income products perform well if you look at what we are now on the advanced stage on the economic cycle we can clearly see some uh, some events that are happening that can hurt fixed income so we have like a important growth we have low unemployment, and we have a lot of inflation. So we say that the economy is hot and the central banks, they have to do something about it. And uh, the thing they can do to reduce inflation and to slow down the circulation of money into the economy is to raise the risk rates. And that's going to hurt fixed income a lot. So if you arrive at, after this stage, when the rates are high, and you go into fixed income and the people calm, calm a little bit down and then after the assets start to decrease, you have a flight to quality. So that's a good phase for fixed income assets. And yeah, so don't go at the end of the cycle, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really like a great strategy, understanding again, like the dynamic of the fixed income product, but as well putting it in into context, into where do we live at the moment with the market conditions so as you said like at the moment there's two really like big themes in the market central bank actions and inflation so again how can you explain like the tapering for example which is let's say the fed the u.s central bank that would decrease the number of assets it's purchasing each month how would that have an impact in fixed income products so the impact is massive because Since the pandemic, the central banks, they have 
been really supportive for the fixed income market. So if a company arrives and say, I need to issue a bond of 1 billion, so I need to borrow 1 billion from investor, if nobody wants to, to give it to them, it's going to be a disaster for the market. But because the central bank is a buyer itself, you know that you're not going to be the only one buying and they are going to support the bond. So it's easy to take duration on the portfolio and it's easy to have good performances on, uh, on bonds uh, when it's like that because you have a marginal buyer that is huge and it's going to buy everything. So they have announced that they are going to reduce that. So you have one big buyer less in the market. And in March, it's going to be the end of the tapering. So they won't be buying any assets. They will actually probably raise rates in March. So you have two effects. First, the rate, the interest rate is going to be higher. So if you have some duration on your portfolio, you're going to hurt. And you'll have one buyer less. The price and the quotation of the bonds will be less supportive. And it goes even farther because on top of quantitative tightening of the tapering, they've announced that they're going to launch the quantitative tightening sooner than what most of the market expected. So quantitative tightening, it's, it's not just that they're going to stop buying uh, some new bonds to put on their balance sheets. It's that on the net point of view, they're going to reduce the size of their balance sheet. So it's interesting to look at how did they build their balance sheet. Like on the 2008, their balance sheet was $800 billion. Then you had the great financial crisis and they did three uh, quantitative easing. So that's three events where they start buying a lot of bonds and they put the balance sheet at $4.5 trillion in 2013. Then they start to raise rate in 2015. And then again, in uh, 2017, they say we're going to do a quantitative tightening. So we're going to reduce the balance sheet. They managed to take $1 trillion off of their balance sheet. But then COVID hit and they had to raise the balance sheet by more than $5 trillion. So today we have a $9 trillion balance sheet and they just announced that it's going to stop growing and they're going to start reducing it. So we mm -hmm. don't have modalities uh, yet. Yeah, it's a huge impact because before it's as if every time, or not every time, but like very often when there was um, like a new issuance in the market, central banks would have been involved and would create confidence. Whereas if now they're not doing anything, it would mean that the real counterparties and real market will have to, to act differently. Yeah, it's exactly that. So it's the same in Europe, like the, the European Central Bank, it's not going to buy as much as, uh, as it has uh, before because uh, they did uh, what they call PEPP. So it's a pandemic plan where they were buying a lot of bonds. So they stopped that. So the rest of the market will have to step up and buy those bonds that they were buying. So the big question is that will they, is it going to be too much for the market to absorb? And if the answer is uh, that it's going to be too much, it's going to be really, really negative for, for the fixed income market. Yeah. And another thing as well to note is that, as you said, inflation is really high or really high compared to <laughs> what central bank targets and second to what we've been used to like for the last 10, 15 years. So clearly it brings the question of rising rates. So would you, and you can differentiate between fixed or floating rates, coupon in fixed income. So would you favor one or the other? 
So yeah, the inflation, it's, uh, we have really impressive prints uh, above uh, 7% or in the US and 5% in Europe. So in the US, we haven't seen that in 40 years uh, since the Paul Volcker era. So it's like really, really high, probably too high if it stays like that. So it's really complicated to analyze this inflation market because most of the components are, you have what we call base effects. So it's something that go up a lot last year, but you're not sure it's going to do the same performance. That's why the debate on uh, is the inflation transitory or not is really important because if you have 7% inflation, but it's only for a few months, it's not a problem. If you have 7% inflation for a few years, it's a disaster. So that's going to be one of the most important data for this year. Where is inflation? Because if it's too high and for longer, the Fed will have to act and to do what we call uh, put the foot on the brakes. So would you favor floating rates, for example, if you know at some point rates can go up? and you don't want to have like a fixed coupon? Uh, yeah, so floating rates are interesting in, the, in this kind of markets because you're not uh, impacted by the duration component. But the, it's a small market, like the vast majority of the bond uh, are fixed rates. So, you know, if everything was equal, I could have a lot of floating rates right now, but uh, I don't because it's not as a liquid market and as a diverse market. So it's better to have normal bond, like fixed rate bond, and uh, to manage the duration. Okay, really interesting. I didn't know it was um, such a difference uh, liquidity-wise. Cool. I always leave a few questions for the end, which are a bit more open. And because you are in financial markets, you seem to know well your stuff. Do you consider yourself pretty good in your personal finances? <laughs> yeah, that's a tough question, but uh, I'm quite happy with uh, how things turn up. I think I've been lucky, so it's not all me, but uh, I was certainly not passive. So everything I have, I put it on the financial markets. I was majority invest in equity for a long time, so I try to save uh, regularly. So I, I put part of my salary every month on some equities and, uh, and fixed income funds. Recently, I uh, transferred my equities into the housing markets. So I was lucky on the timing because uh, I did that when the rates were still low and before the equity correction that we had uh, this beginning uh, of the year, which could turn into a crash. So that's why I say I was lucky because I had equities for years and they did great. And when I sold them all, it was not because I thought the market was going to go go down like that, but it did in the end. So sometimes you better be lucky than right. And uh, But in the end, it's good, uh, very good results. Cool. Okay. Thank you so much, Tim, for this discussion. I really enjoyed it. I'm always keen to exchange on the market. I find it pretty fascinating. As you can always learn, you never know what's going to happen. And you really understand the world much better being financially literate. So thanks for sharing your experience and your knowledge. And I love how you added value by linking facts with strategies. So thank you so much. It's been very insightful and all the best. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Cool. Thanks. So that's the end of this episode. I hope you're as enthusiastic as I am. You can find the notes and the key takeaways on my website at maricafino.com. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and spread the word. Thank you.